Well, amen. Children, as usual, I've caught myself saying always, as usual, you will find the words that you are listening for this evening in the normal place in the bulletin. You'll find that, I think, on the top of the page there under the sermon title and passage this week. I want to begin this week by doing something, um, well, I want, to, I want to read a portion of a blog that uh, Wendy uh, put me on on Friday, and it's a little longer than I typically like to do, but I, uh, I think you'll understand why uh, when I read it to you, why I've, I've chosen to read as much as I've chosen to read. It's a uh, blog by Alistair Begg, and he says this. The few days between Christmas and the New Year teach us something profound about our soul's longings. More often than not, Christmas Day's jubilation and gladness seem to come and go in a flash. After so much anticipation, we feel as if we are left with little more than ribbons and wrapping, cleanup and returns. The magic never lasts. Because the day itself only points us toward what C.S. Lewis described as the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. Christmas, this season of celebration and commotion, leaves us wanting because only Jesus, the Christ of Christmas, can truly satisfy our heart's deepest hunger. When Jesus' own mother sang praise to God as she anticipated Christ's birth, she proclaimed, He has filled the hungry with good things. This imagery isn't unique to Mary, however. It's found throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 107, 9, for instance, tells us that God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. In the same psalm, the psalmist tells us that some wandered in desert wastes, and that, hunger, and that hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. This is our condition apart from Christ. Wandering aimlessly in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Without Him, relief is beyond reach. And solace and comfort are nothing more than a distant dream. There isn't a person alive who hasn't felt the pang of unmet expectations and longing. This is simply how God designed us, to yearn and pine for something greater than ourselves. The problem, of course, is that we attempt to meet those longings with something right in front of us. Some of us count on Christmas to fulfill those desires every time the calendar flips from November to December, or maybe even earlier. But Christmas won't cut it. Our longings run deeper than a single merry day or the weeks that accompany it. The reason that not even the joy of of the Christmas season can satisfy us is that the very epicenter of our being is made for the God who makes Christmas meaningful. If we attempt to live and celebrate apart from Him, and, and, and certainly we know the temptation to get caught up in the consumerism of the season. No amount of holiday cheer can fill the void that's left. And he concludes by saying this, as Augustine reminded us, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Now that Christmas is over and as we've entered into believe it or not, 2022. Um, 
how can we eliminate that feeling of wanting more that, that Christmas has left us with? And better yet, how can we, as we move into this new year, how can we live throughout this coming year avoiding its reemergence that's bound to happen even before next December? I think our passage tonight provides us an answer. Um, the outline is found in a normal place in your bulletin. We're going to look at four things from this passage tonight. We're going to look first at the voices of the suffering. We'll then look at the grace and mercy of the Savior. We'll look at the response of the many. And then finally, we'll look at the faith of the one. Right? The voices of the suffering, the grace and mercy of our Savior, the response of the many, and then the faith of the one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Well, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Would you enable us to explore its truths, love it with all our heart, and embrace it with all our strength, and engraft it into our lives? Would you, in these moments, awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and comfort uh, and, and challenge us? And then, Father, we'd ask that you would refresh us and strengthen us and encourage us and comfort us. Uh, as, as always, I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, and so I'm in need of, of you and your assistance. I'm in need of you to, to strengthen me and encourage me. Support me, strengthen me, and, and fill me with your spirit that I might be able to do something good for you this evening. And it's for the sake of Christ and his church I pray these things. Amen. Well, you know from maybe reading the passage yourself or hearing Matt read it earlier that Luke says that as Jesus is on his way to his predetermined redemptive appointment in Jerusalem. He is making his way uh, between Samaria and Galilee. And as he is making his way, he comes to a village and as, uh, or before he actually enters the village, he encounters a group of people. And they are actually outside the village. And, and they're outside the village and they're remaining at distance from him and from others because they're lepers. And this group of lepers are just like the leper that we met back in chapter 5 in February of last year. Uh, they, are, they are full of sores that are probably oozing. Uh, their skin is, is white and ashy. Their extremities and, and their faces are probably swollen to the point of deformity. They're in pain due to the nerve damage that was associated with this disease. And their clothes were torn, and their hair was long and haggard and in knots. They weren't just considered ill, they were considered the walking dead. And the group wasn't keeping 
their social distance of six feet. Um, they weren't simply quarantined for a week to ten days. They had been ostracized. Right? They had been rejected, and, and this had been going on for years. They had been um, not only removed from their families, but removed from society. They were outside the camp. They were outside the gate. They'd have to walk around. You remember, they, they would have to walk around with their finger covering their upper lip, yelling, unclean, unclean. They would have been relationally and socially and religiously rejected, isolated, alienated. The only company they would have kept would have been among themselves. And it's important to note that this condition wasn't necessarily caused by sin, but their condition, their disease and the uncleanness that was associated with it perfectly illustrated their sinful condition and was used by God as such, as we learned back in our study of Leviticus in three years ago now, two and a half years ago. And as we've been seeing throughout our study of this gospel. Well, in verse 13, Luke says they don't just hold up a sign that says, help me. They're standing off at a distance, and when they see Jesus approach, me, uh, approach they begin to yell, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Have mercy on us. It's a cry of desperation. It wasn't a whisper. They're suffering physically and emotionally, and they, and they believed that He was the only one that could do what needed to be done. No one else could do it. They wanted Him to end their suffering. They wanted Him to relieve their pain. They wanted Him to, to end the sadness, to end the loneliness. They were confident that he had the power to end the misery that they were in. And they weren't going to pass up this opportunity. They saw him and they wanted his attention. Brothers and sisters, based upon, and you've heard this from me, you've heard this from Aaron but, and, and others, based upon how our prayers for one another... Um, and those close to us have been answered this year. I would say, in all humility, and yet confidently, that we have been a church that uh, prays. Um, and again, humbly and confidently would say, prays well. Um, and yet, at the same time, I, th I think we have to admit that we don't always... And in every, on every occasion, in every way, pray as we should. I know I don't. And so there's always room for improvement. Always things that we might do better. And so I'd like for us to pause just for a minute and, and of course, as is our custom, ask a few questions. To get us to consider this idea, in light of what we've just read, how do we pray for the spiritual, physical, and emotional needs that we have? Ourselves, 
others, family members outside our church, within our church? How, how do we pray? Do we pray as those who are needy and in desperate, with a desperate sense of uh, desperation? Do we unreservedly make our requests known to God and experience the peace that passes all understanding, or do we remain anxious? Do we make our requests known, even in our weakness, even when we don't know how to pray? Do we trust in the Spirit to intercede for us, or do we have not because we ask not? Do we pray humbly, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy and our dependence upon our Lord and Savior for what we do not deserve? Or do we pray that our needs, um, or do we pray believing that we deserve our needs to be met? Simply because we've asked. Do we eagerly and resolutely make our requests, trusting in the grace and mercy of God, who is the giver of all good gifts and bestows favor and honor upon all those who look to Him in faith, to all those who are His? Or do we wait until we have our acts together before we approach Him? Well, in verse 14, we see the grace and mercy of the Savior. Luke says, when He saw them, He said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. He didn't just hear their cries. He saw their plight. He, could, he saw them. And he witnessed their misery and their suffering with his own eyes. And, and rather than turn away in disgust, that would have been the typical response from any and everybody else. He remained focused upon them and he, and he intervened. He met their unworthiness with unmerited favor and their weakness with compassion. And he healed them. He healed all ten of them. But notice he didn't touch them. Notice, as he's done in the past, he didn't speak to or about their condition in any way. He, instead, he simply instructed them to go to the priests. He told them to do what the law commanded them to do. He told them to go to the ones that had been designated to determine whether they were clean or unclean, to determine the diseases that people had, to pronounce judgment upon those diseases, to tell how they were to be treated and whether they, again, whether they were clean or unclean. And they were to go, oddly enough, even before, right, their condition had changed. Their condition had not changed when he told them to go. And despite the fact that their condition hadn't changed, they went. It was an act of obedience because they had been commanded to do. It was interesting. They had been commanded to do what only those who had, who had been cleansed should do. So there was an anticipation that they would, in fact, be 
cleansed. They believed it would happen. And of course, on their way, he does answer their prayers. And he heals them. He heals them completely. And their physical and emotional anguish is relieved. Years. We just have to let that sink in. Years of that anguish. Years of misery. Over. So when they arrived at the local synagogue and then when they would travel to Jerusalem to make the sacrifices that they were to make, they'd be declared ritually clean. Some of them probably, maybe, for the first time. Their suffering was over. They would return, not as the outsiders that they were when they left, but they would return as the insiders that they had been declared to be and made to be by His grace and mercy alone. But let's look at how they responded. Because all ten were healed, all ten were healed the same way, all ten were healed completely, right? They're identical in that, in that way, yet their responses aren't identical. They're very different. The majority of them, nine of them, responded similarly to one another in that they made their way to the priests as instructed. And who could blame them, right? I mean, I've I've been trying to emphasize what they had been experiencing on purpose because it is true, but I want us to think about how they responded. We, We can't blame them at all. They run to the priests as instructed. Once they realized that they were healthy and whole, they, had, they, they wanted to make up for lost time. So they wanted to get there and they wanted to get back. They wanted to be in their homes that they hadn't been in. They wanted to be in the village. <laughs> they wanted to be in their homes. They wanted to see their family. They wanted to hug their family that they hadn't hugged. They wanted to sit down at the table and eat together. They wanted to be, again, a part of the community in the village that they hadn't been a part of. They wanted to be back in the synagogue to worship. They wanted to be back around in fellowship with other people. All of the things that we take for granted and we moan and complain about when we're under quarantine for two weeks. They had for the first time in some cases. They had been overcome. That, that, just that flicker of hope right, had, had burst into this exuberant excitement. But one had a very different response. Different from the other nine. In verse 15, Luke says, When he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice. The New American Standard says that he turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He's no different than the other nine in that what they were looking forward to, he was looking forward to. He would have been looking exactly forward to the same things, but for him, it could all wait. There was something that gripped him. There was something that, that seized him immediately and compelled him to do something the others did not. And he turns back. 
And he goes to Jesus. And he goes to Jesus to say thank you. Unlike the others, he hadn't immediately forgotten who he was just a few short minutes earlier. He hadn't forgotten the hopelessness of his existence just 10 minutes prior. And he also wasn't under any delusion that he was somehow worthy of what Jesus had just done for him. There wasn't a hint of some false ideation that he deserved the healing that he had experienced. He understood that he had been salvaged from the pit of despair. Again, by grace and mercy. And because of that, his first, his first response was to go back. The rest could wait. And in that moment and in the moments ahead, he revealed what he believed about Jesus. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He said, the man displays a unique, bold, spontaneous reaction of faith. Jesus did not demand this praise. It is freely offered. The man was, uh, has correctly connected Jesus with God's work. His actions simply reveal the depth of his perception. The man's respect shows his awareness that God is working through Jesus. And he knew that apart from him, he would have remained in that state of hopelessness. He would have remained in the misery. He would have remained in pain. The thought, the thought that he, that the restoration that he had undergone was somehow deserved or merited by him never crossed his mind. And his gratitude led to worship. His praise began immediately, he glorified God, he thanked Jesus, and he publicly professed not only his thanks, but his faith. Faith in Christ. But then Luke does something really, really interesting at the end of verse 16. And he, doesn't, he, he hasn't forgotten, he's adding it for, for emphasis' sake. And he says, now the man was a Samaritan. It's not, again, it's not an afterthought. It's not something that he's forgotten. We're not really even told anything about the other nine, just about this one. But the suggestion seems to be, of course, that the other nine are Israelites. Right? The, other, the other nine are Jews. So in the words of Philip Ryken, the nine, being Jews, were religious enough to know where to find a priest and perform the eight-day ritual of cleansing, but their hearts were not melted by the grace that God had shown to them in Jesus Christ. They were happy enough to be clean, but they did not see themselves as recipients of undeserved mercy. They, he says they took Jesus for granted, treating Him like a cosmic butler instead of a suffering servant. They did not think they owed Him anything, not even thanksgiving. And in verses 17 and 18, Jesus calls them out. Now, they're not there, uh, but he calls them out nonetheless when he asks these questions. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? He says, look, I healed ten. Why is there only one here? And why is it this one? Why is it not one of the other nine? Because the other nine 
being Jews, were a part of the community of faith, right? They were part of the covenant community. Why wouldn't they return? Why is it this one who wasn't a part of the covenant community, why, why was it this one who, who wouldn't even be allowed in the outer courts of the temple? Why is it this outsider of all outsiders that is responding as he should? And by now, you, we've been in this gospel for a while now, right? And, and so this doesn't surprise us, right? We've come to expect the responses that would have been unexpected at the time. And so we're not surprised. But, but, this, but the national identity... I think because the other nine aren't actually, uh, Luke doesn't specify who they are, that their, their, um, their identities are, are not what's the point. Right? The fact that Luke adds it here is you know, used for surprise, but not in a way that takes away from the real point of the passage, which is gratitude versus ingratitude. Not Samaritan and Jew. Gratitude versus ingratitude. And this is really significant because as most commentators point out, ingratitude based on Romans 121 is probably, in the words of Dr. Riken, the most common characteristic of fallen man. He says, we're, we're inclined to think of ingratitude as a relatively minor sin, but in fact, it is one of the worst sins in the Bible. Dale Davis puts it this way. He says, ingratitude is the first step on the road to twisted thinking and darkened understanding. What we may consider an optional extra is rather an essential necessity. And another writer put it this way, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. And it makes sense when we think about it. Ingratitude says, I don't owe God. God owes me. Ingratitude says God is not worthy or deserving of glory and praise, and I deserve everything I have. Gratitude, on the other hand, says God doesn't owe me anything. I owe Him everything. God alone is worthy and deserving of praise and glory, and I don't deserve anything that I have. Brothers and sisters, we need to consider the following. Is it more common for us to complain or to praise God in the midst of our circumstances? Is it more common for us to gripe about what we don't have Or thank Him for what we do have. 
Do we thank Him for both our prosperity and our adversity because both come from Him? Or do we forget to praise Him for what He does? Or do, yeah, do we forget to praise Him for what He does and grumble about what He doesn't when things don't go our way? What are the little things that we overlook and fail to give thanks and praise for? And in what ways are we slow to thank Him and give praise? Calvin says, or said, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Every blessing that God confers upon us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in giving thanks. Children, let me ask you something to talk about with your parents. How can you, even even now, develop a grateful heart? Think about for just a minute, boys and girls, what, what, for what are you grateful? And how can you express gratitude for it? What does that look like? And what do you maybe take for granted that you fail to give thanks for? Think of all that you have. What do you take for granted that you should really thank God for on a regular basis? And how can we all, how can all of us develop a discipline in which we give thanks and praise to God in every situation and on every occasion. I I think, I think it begins, as I've considered this this week, I think it begins on the basic level of understanding and remembering the greatness of our sin. And then considering and remembering the the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of Christ. And then remembering the significance of our redemption, the significance of our salvation. It's a gift that we've received that we don't, owe, uh, that we, that we don't earn or merit or deserve. See, there's a proper, proper order to things. It's, it's guilt, grace, And then the fruit of gratitude that should mark our lives. And by remembering those things, then then everything else in our lives springs forth out of that fountain of grace. Which brings us to this last point. The faith of the one. In verse 19, Luke writes, And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith is has made you well. And I believe the better translation is actually your faith has saved you. You see, in returning and giving His praise to God, in returning and thanking Jesus and and giving praise and glory to God, the the Samaritan was exhibiting uh, the fact that he had done what the other nine had failed to do, and that was he had embraced the internal reality to which his disease and his cleansing pointed. 
But that's, that's why Jesus did it. That's why he healed them. The man had come to a place where he, he understood and, and believed that he was the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah who had come to save his people from his sins through, through his death. He had come to forgive them of their sins. And he alone was worthy of worship. He knew that. And so, in returning, he not only acknowledged that he believed who Jesus was, he also acknowledged that he, that he trusted Him, and he had faith in Him. He was resting in Him alone for what he could not do for himself, not just physically, but spiritually. He was acknowledging that he didn't he didn't want just what Jesus could do for him. He really wanted Jesus. He didn't just want what Jesus could do for him, or, the, or he didn't want Jesus just for his work. He wanted him, he wanted his person. And Jesus looks at him and he says, That faith that you're exhibiting right now, it's that faith through which. You're saved. It's, it's that faith through which you have been salvaged. You were far off. You've been brought near. All ten. Remember, all ten were completely healed, physically speaking. They were cleansed. But the Samaritan received what the others did not. He had not only been healed physically, he had been delivered spiritually. He had been restored and, re and reconciled to the Father through his faith in Christ. I want to make two points about this um, before we um, confess our common faith together and come to the table. First, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear these words that I read this week from one pastor. He said this, It is not enough for us to do what God says, as the other nine lepers did. It's not even enough for us to be grateful when God restores our health or grants us some other blessing. We will be saved forever only if we come to Jesus in faith, trusting Him the way the tenth leper did and then worshiping at His feet. And so the invitation is for you tonight is to acknowledge your sin and to look in faith to Christ. Admit that you're a sinner and that He alone can save you. Repent of your sin, turn to faith in Him, and He will be faithful to forgive you of your sins. And second, for those of us who are Christians... As we begin this new year, may we not simply seek the benefits and the good gifts and perfect gifts of our God that are ours in Christ, but may we seek Him alone. May we not simply want more health, but may we want the one who heals. May we not simply want more of our needs met, 
but may we want the one who provides. May we not simply want more fellowship, but may we want the one who is there and who will never leave us or forsake us. May, may we not simply want more safety, but may we want the one who protects. May we not simply want to be in more right relationships with others, but may we want the one who is peace and who reconciles. May we not simply want to do what is right, but may we want the one who is righteous. May we not simply want more victories over our besetting sins, but may we want the one who has been victorious and given us the power over those sins. May we not simply want more justice, but may we want the one who is both just and the justifier. May we not simply want to experience the superabundance of spiritual blessings that are ours, but may we want Him, the one through whom those blessings have been secured and are bestowed upon us. May we not simply want more, but may we want Him. Again, as Augustine said, God has made us for Himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. He has been and is and will always be enough. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.